Money Sense, bringing an informed financial perspective to the Cayman community. A very good morning and warm welcome to Money Sense. Last show, we had the very great pleasure of having two asset allocators in the studio live with us. They were here on island for the Cayman Alternative Investment Summit, an annual conference that takes place here. Many fascinating topics were discussed during the show, but there are two elements I'd like to say a few extra words about. The first was the confirmation by these two asset allocators, and by many others who control the largest pools of money on the planet, that they are increasingly allocating money, their investors' money, remember, and when we say investors, we mean regular people like us with pension savings. They're increasingly allocating money away from what are known as traditional assets. Now, traditional assets incorporate things such as cash, bonds, equities, the stuff that we normally are used to buying when we invest. Now, allocating away from this doesn't mean not investing in traditional assets. It means making more investments in different asset types. So what it means is that they're allocating an ever-increasing ever amount. Once upon a time it was zero, then it became five, then 10, then 15. And nowadays we're seeing some of these big investment managers allocating as much as 30 to 40% of their total portfolios away from those things that we're most common with. So they're not investing 40% of their money in those traditional things such as cash, bonds or equities. So what does that mean? And why are they doing it? Why are some of the world's largest endowments, why are some of the world's largest pension plans investing so much money in these other asset types? And should we be doing the same sort of thing? Now, the reason to bring this up is not to say that everyone should actually rush out and invest in hedge funds, invest in venture capital funds, invest in private equity, or some of these other alternative assets. I'm going to say more on that later. But to highlight the direction that the smartest investors in the world have been heading, for over a decade and are increasingly heading. This is important in a number of ways and it's important for each and every one of us who is listening to this show today because the law in the Cayman Islands as it affects the private sector explicitly actually prohibits investments in these assets in your pension. Now that's quite an interesting dilemma because here we are seeing the world's largest investment managers increasingly moving money away from these traditional asset types and yet the law here in Cayman prohibits managers from doing the same sort of thing. Now, is that a problem? Is that something we should be happy with? I'm not going to draw any conclusions. I'm just stating the facts as they exist on the ground. Indeed, this could be a problem, and it's one that investors should be very mindful of, because if the smartest people out there, the smartest people managing the biggest sums of money, are saying it's appropriate and sensible to move money to other asset types, then at the very least we should pay attention as to why they're doing so. It doesn't mean we should do so, it just means we should be paying attention more closely to that. And we also should think about whether that means we should be changing, or at least thinking about changing, the rules and regulations that govern how our money can be invested. So what that means is that as we learn more about these asset types, as we learn more about the risks associated with them, Potentially, we should be talking to our elected representatives and saying to them, hey, we need to be smarter about how we're able to allocate our money because it's very important for our lifetime savings to have that money properly allocated. Remember, as it stands at the moment, you can't allocate the money in that way. Now, the second point I want to make is that individual investors need to be very mindful of something that one of our guests on the last show mentioned, which is following fads. Just because others are doing something does not mean that it is the right thing for all investors to be doing. 
The dot-com bubble, for goodness sake, should have taught us all that. Thus, although it is right and sensible for us to agitate for laws to be adjusted, it's also necessary that people behave cautiously and step gently into areas that they are unfamiliar with. If you don't understand the basics of what you're investing in, you probably shouldn't be investing in it. If you don't understand the basics of Bitcoin, if you don't understand the basics of private equity, then you shouldn't be investing in it. You should, first of all, learn more about it and then think about investing in it. Indeed, many people have financial advisors. Now, if your financial advisor says to you to invest in something which you are unfamiliar with, you should ask your financial advisor to explain it better to you so that you have an understanding of it. That's a really crucial thing. Just because an advisor says you should do something doesn't mean you should always do it. You should pay more attention yourself to what it is people are telling you to invest in. Now, that's way more than enough editorializing for myself. We are going to take a short break, and then after that, we're going to have an extended conversation with Christina Chi on the future of the investment industry, the role of technology, and learn what high-frequency trading really is. This is Money Sense, bringing an informed financial perspective to the Cayman community. Brought to you by the CFA Society Cayman Islands. And now, more Money Sense. Welcome back to the show and an extended second half when we're going to have a conversation with Christina Chi on the future of the investment industry, the role of technology, and learn what high-frequency trading really is. Christina is the CEO of Domeyard, which is among the longest-running high-frequency trading hedge funds in the world. Now, Christina, let me start off, if I may, if I may with a fairly basic question, which is, what is high-frequency trading? Well, first off, thank you for having me. Simon. Pleasure. I really appreciate uh, being on your show. This is great. Uh, so high-frequency trading, I guess, high-level definition is basically we're making many trades per day at very high speeds. That's basically all we're doing. Um, there's nothing more complicated than that. You know, we're not doing front-running or anything else. That's uh, I don't know if anyone's read Flash Boys before. Uh, we don't actually do any of that. Um, that's mentioned in the book. But rather, all we're doing is taking data, making some insights from the data, and uh, making many, many trades, to, like thousands of trades during the day. So we might be in and out of the market within, you know, like a split second, within less than a second. And um, it's, a, it's really exciting because we, the difference is we're just looking at things on a very micro level instead of a macro level like other firms do. So you're looking at what's going on in the trading market as opposed to what's going on perhaps in the world more in a bigger picture. Oh uh, yeah, sort of like that. So we look at the data at like a very um, nanosecond granularity. Who's trading what at what's, what level at what level of activity? Exactly. So it's like if you look at a biology class where like the bacteria and you look at like microbiology and the things that you can't see with your eye. I've never heard a guest introduce themselves or explain themselves as like, like bacteria. Yeah, compared uh, to biology. That's different. That's different. That's different. Yeah, so it's different, yeah. But high frequency trading has itself had some bad press. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been accused of, I think I've read things that it's been accused of the downfall of Western, Western civilization in certain, certain uh, perhaps popular uh, magazines. Why is that and what is the issue that people are trying to say that it has? Well, you know, like most innovations, the, the innovations behind high-frequency trading, you know, came from, it's true, it came from a place of, um, you know, greed and um, just very questionable activities of, let's say, you know, a lot of data is transmitted through microwave power. So Flash Boys, they talk about how they were, you know, blasting poles under the river, over the, you know, under the mountain, and trying to get the fastest wire just to be a little bit faster than somebody else so they can make millions of dollars per year. 
Um, and, and that is controversial, you know, something that we should question and be like, why are we doing this, right? Um, but today, the good news is that actually those microwave routes are, um, they're not owned by individual companies, they're owned by vendors. So we, as a startup, you know, we will, we're eight years old, I don't know if you can call us a startup, but um, we will pay the same vendor the same price that Goldman Sachs pays, and, you know, we get the same speeds as any large firm out there, which is great. So the, the field has been democratized a lot, I think, over the last couple of years, but, you know, that bad press about, um, they call that front-running, you know, where people are buying, buying order flow, um, I'll explain, I guess I'll explain that. Um, so there's this thing that Michael Lewis calls front-running, which is basically buying, it's actually buying order flow. So this is, there's a whole bunch of people who say, I want to buy some Microsoft. They put it into their broker's system yeah. and the broker says, well, I've got thousands of people who want to buy Microsoft at this particular price. Yeah. And they sell that data, don't they, potentially they to some data. people. Yeah. And people do stuff with that. Right. So like a good example is like my parents, they, you know, trade on an app called Robinhood, right? Yeah. It's a new startup. Well, then another billion dollar company. But um, so Robinhood is free, right? They don't, there's a zero dollar brokerage. And, and the question is, well, how, there's no such thing as free lunch here, right? If, um, if it's a zero dollar brokerage, then chances are you're the product. They're selling your data somewhere, and that's what they're doing. They're selling data to those so-called, um, you know, Michael Lewis calls them front runners. <laughs> um, these big banks, you know, Citigroup buys it, Goldman Sachs, every big bank you can think of buys this order flow, uh, and then will place trades, you know, based on that, based on that order flow before it gets actually sent to the exchange. There is a sense someone listening to this will say, but aren't I supposed to be when I buy something? Am I not supposed to be buying it as opposed to telling other people I'm buying it? Because if you tell someone you're buying something, presumably they would put the price up against you and then you've paid more than you should have done. Right. So how, how, do, how do we overcome that argument and that concern that people have? Right. I mean, it's, it's unfortunately, you know, if you're paying zero dollars to make a trade, right, so that's the, that's, chances are somebody's paying someone out there. So you're saying that's the, that's the, the compensation you get for not paying commission. Exactly. You have to give up something you in compensation. You might get a price, you know, you might be executing a trade at a price that you don't want, or you're making a little less money than, than you would have had you, you know, gone for a firm that doesn't sell their data. Uh, but the, the same goes for other industries. Like Facebook is a great example. Facebook is okay. free. We don't, you know, pay for it, but um, they make all their money by selling all your data to, to other businesses out there that buy it. One of the things that a lot of academic research says is that investors trade too much and not, not because they trade too much but because the cost of trading eats away at returns so that almost is saying well some of these high frequency firms who are paying to access data if you take the cost of trading down to zero robin hood's example then you could potentially get into a situation where retail investors could be better off in that scenario because they're not spending so much on commissions is that a plausible argument yeah, absolutely. You know, and um, to be honest, like we don't know how much you know you're you might be losing by going for a zero dollar brokerage, right? Versus paying it used to be like you know six or seven bucks per trade. It used to be quite a lot, or they would charge a percentage commission some of these brokers, and and uh, and that can add up a lot over time. And so I think it really depends on you know what you're trading and uh, you know what you're looking at here as well. So yeah, it's tough to to really say which one. I wouldn't argue that one is better than the other. Um, I think it's just what you think is better for yourself. But you said your parents are on the Robin Hood's yeah. trading plan. So, so you haven't told them not to. It's because well, they're poor and, you know, I'm like, they, I get it. You know, they come, they're from that environment and they don't want to have to spend that much money for trade. And they don't know how much, you know, their data is being sold out there. Um, and to them, it doesn't make enough of a difference to justify going on some other more, you know, traditional expensive platforms. Yeah. yeah. Now, so one of the reasons I was so interested in having you um, come on the show was because High frequency trading in and of itself is a trading strategy, is a style of investing. 
but it derives its ability. The only way you can do high frequency trading is by the use of data and by computing power and such like. And the general theme of this show that we're trying to achieve here is sort of to say, is there a future for humans in this industry with the proliferation of data and with the ability of computers to mine information faster than we ever could as humans? What role do we as humans have in this sort of environment? I mean, that's a big, big question. We can drill down into some elements of it. But what's your general, consent, general thought on that? That's a really great uh, question and topic. You know, one of the biggest misconceptions in, in high-frequency trading is that we're just letting the robots take over the world. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's that fear that people, you know, the media creates all this fear about robots and AIs, you know, trading and taking yeah. over the world. But in reality, the truth is that these, it's a very early stage for um, machine learning and AI and trading. In fact, um, these AI are extremely dumb, which is what we realized over time. Um, they're, they're as smart or as dumb as humans behind the scenes. And I'll give you a really good example. So IBM Watson, you know, you might have heard of Watson from Jeopardy, how it beat Ken Jennings, and that's wonderful and great for a game like Jeopardy. Um, AlphaGo, you know, with mm -hmm. Google as well, creating, beating the best Go players in the world. And apparently he, the best Go player resigned because he's like, AI is better than me. <laughs> it's kind of sad, you know. But in trading, we don't see that, which is interesting. Um, so IBM Watson has an ETF, actually. Like they created an AI-based um, tradable, you know, an ETF. And um, this ETF, this fund, they uh, have underperformed the even the S&P 500. They've been performing terribly, you know, which means like, are they really that smart? You know, when I had high expectations for this, you know, these are Watson, I'm sure they have, you know, hundreds of people working on how many people who work on Watson itself, but it's a, you know, AlphaGo is a $25 million project. It's really expensive. They spent a lot of money on this and they still can't make money from the markets. And so just really disappointing almost to see how, how far behind it is. And we, we do have some theories as to why, like um, why these AI just can't, they can't beat the market. And the number one reason is that the data in um, this space is constantly changing. And um, finance is still, you know, it's a largely human-driven markets are always changing. There's always events going on. There's private companies, uh, you know, Tesla's valuation going crazy because of something, you know, out there. Or Elon Musk makes, makes a tweet and then the markets go up or down. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff happens. It's a human-driven market at the end of the day because it's humans who run these companies. And so long as it's human-driven, you know, you can't have um, a system like AlphaGo, you know, beat the human um, financial markets. It just doesn't work that way. Whereas the game of Go or chess, you know, any game like that, they're perfect, complete games, right? Like, it has rules. Rules, yeah. yeah the rules will, have never changed over, um, you know, thousands of years or whatever for Go. <laughs> and uh, and that's, that's why an AI can really be trained based off thousands of years of data and beat it. But finance is an open-ended, you know, it's not closed, it's open off. There's different products that are traded in finance every day. There's different companies that are IPOing. <laughs> you know, so it's just an infinite. And then, and then I guess you've got the quirks of human behavior. So right. the very essence, the very fact that we exist in this market mm -hmm. means that we behave irrationally sometimes. And yeah. you can't program for irrationality very easily because it means, by definition, it's behaving unexpected and peculiarly. Yeah, by definition, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, we have even on our end, we're constantly monitoring, even though we do high frequency, you know, we have humans every day that monitor the trading strategies and uh, more chances than not, something goes wrong. <laughs> and the human has to come in and be like, oh, the machine messed up again. You know, oh, this weird event happened that we, the machine couldn't predict because it's never happened before. There's no, there's no historical data on it and we just don't, the machine can't tell the future, right? Yeah. Um, but for a human, okay, I can at least like, you know, predict that something, have a hunch that something's going to happen or 
hear about it from somebody else, you know, and or watch the news and know, oh crap, but, you know, there's going to be this big event happening, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> now, tell me a little bit about your backstory then. What exactly got you into being a high-frequency trader? So I think you started off, did you start off, did I read somewhere in your dorm room or something crazy like this? Yeah, so um, it was really random. I did Most definitely, people, no kid grows up being like, I want to be a high-frequency trader. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think, well, most kids probably wouldn't know what a high-frequency trader is. They want, they want to be the next Google engineer or something, don't they? So go on. I don't want to work in finance. You know, I never wanted to work in finance, for sure. But what happened was I um, wanted to do biology, you know, interned in a bio lab, and uh, it was a really long process. Like, in terms of the feedback cycle, you know, we're feed I'm literally alone in a room at 2 a.m., you know, windowless room, feeding rats in, like, a, a bio lab, and it was miserable. And um, then the project was over, you know, eight months later, and, and I talked to the PhDs and I'm working with, and they're like, oh, I'm like, what's going to happen? Are we going to get published? And they're like, oh, we don't have the budget. Sorry, we can't do this. And then I realized, oh, my goodness, like, this feedback cycle is miserable in, in some of these, you know, not to say anything bad about that industry because it's great and we need really good researchers and doctors, but um, I personally prefer an industry with a faster, um, and I guess I went to the opposite extreme yeah. of high frequency where the feedback loop is so fast. is less than instantaneous almost, isn't yeah. it? I mean, we make thousands of trades per day, so for better or worse, I go home every day, I know exactly how I did. Yeah. I know exactly how I did compared to my team, you know, compared to the rest of the world. Like, I just kind of know. And, you know, if we had a bad day, I've learned over time, don't be emotional, you know, try not to try to separate your own mental state from your fund's performance. It's so important to do that. So anyway, so yeah, then we just, I decided, okay, let's go into this quick feedback cycle stuff. And finance was, you know, really practical in college. So I decided to change my major to finance. And got a bunch of internships and then slowly but surely got more and more into quant <laughs> mm -hmm. um, just because I, I just like it. It's really hard to describe. It's like you just have a, you know when you like something and then <laughs> you don't really have a reason for it. It's just kind of like, well, I like the feedback cycle and I like uh, the people I get to work with, you know, and uh, I just like waking up every morning and doing it. <laughs> I guess it's in the, it, one of the interesting things you said there is that there's a, there's a sense that many investors focus too much on the short term in terms of have they made money today and it seems almost that high frequency trading is ultra short term but in a sense it's not is it because you're still taking long term invest you're still measuring yourself on a long term basis you're still investing for the long term you just happen to be trading very frequently so it doesn't negate the argument that actually investors should focus on the long term returns and not focus on the short day to day movements every time every day you make money is better than days you don't make money but you still need to invest over the longer term. 100%. So we're hedge fund structures. We have all of our clients are mostly external investors. And um, and we, we judge, you know, whenever we have potential investors who want to invest, we always judge them based on how they view that. Because if they're very short-term in their, in their mindset, very narrow-minded, you know, it doesn't go well. Every fund has a bad, you know, every single hedge fund has a bad week, month, year, you know. And, um, and some investors, they just can't handle that very well. And so we have to tell them, like, look, look, just because... You know, you hear in the news a lot of high-frequency funds, they, they never have a losing day. But, you know, the reality is these days, it's very common to have a lot of losing days in, in the fund. Uh, and you have to get used to that. And so long as you think about the longer-term portfolio, the overall performance, and also the exposures you have, because you want to, you know, hopefully, um, people, some, some of our investors treat us as a, it's called a satellite fund, where um, we're not a core part of the portfolio, but they'll allocate a little bit to us because we're taking a risk in a really interesting kind of niche area. <laughs> so we're like a niche fund in, in their portfolios, and, and that's okay so long as we know where we fit and, you know, where we fit into that larger picture. So 100% the um, long-term matters. One of the things, Christina, that I know you're quite passionate about and quite interested in, obviously from your work, but is artificial intelligence. And 
we've talked about that a little bit, but it is a scary concept. You, you think of computers taking over and the great, uh, brains that are better than the best human minds can be. What's, what's your thinking on this, uh, this subject matter? As someone who works in this industry and uses computing power to make your life easier and be successful. Right, so you know it's funny, as uh, crazy as my job is and stuff, I'm actually a huge skeptic of um, most everything we do actually, including AI. Um, I think one of the biggest issues in AI today is uh, there's a lot of, um, it's being used as justification for discrimination a lot of times. So police will use AI, for instance, to scan people's faces. And, you know, and chances are all these AIs, like, uh, you know, black faces, dark skin faces, tend to have a much higher chance of getting, a, what do you call it, a false positive. Like, oh, they're a criminal when they're actually not. You yeah. know? And that's based on, that was also based on just human bias and judgment and bias in the human data to begin with. So because it is humans that create the rules. And right. so the AI is interpreting them. Then it evolves but it can only base it on what's given to start with, right? Exactly, or even, even Western, you know, AI has bias towards Western culture, so um, when you, you know, when you Google wedding, right, um, you see these weddings with white dresses and like the, the usual mm. Western wedding, but, you know, what about a traditional African-style wedding, a Japanese-style yeah. wedding, you know, Google and AI wouldn't recognize that today, you know, and that, that scares me because there's, that means there's so much, all the training is being done in Silicon Valley, on a very specific type of face, on a very specific type of culture, uh, and there's not enough done like around the world, and so that um, that lack of diversity in AI will, you know, will harm us. I think at the end of the day, if we're not careful. Do you think Do you think finance has the same lack of diversity in it when it comes to analyzing, interpreting, or putting data into systems? We, finance has done a pretty poor job of bringing minorities and women into the industry. Mm-hmm. And is that a problem of input, again, in terms of what the models are then going to be doing as a result of not having the diversity of cognitive thought? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We experienced it. I mean, I experienced personally in my company when we're trying to hire people. And my uh, naive mindset, like, you know, five, six years ago, was like, let's try to hire the smartest people. You know, they're all like, these older guys, right, which is great. Like, they're, they're really talented. Let's hire the smartest people in this industry. And, of course, they're all these guys who've pioneered this space, high-frequency trading. They come onto our team, and then we realize quickly, wait a second something's not right um the strategies they're running they don't work anymore they worked they made like 100 million dollars in 2008 with that strategy not in 2018 no it doesn't the world's work. moved on it moves way yeah, the world has moved way uh, along it's really like long past that time so then um then we realized okay let's hire some younger folks from college you know trying to diversify our team now and the younger folks come on board and they're like hey you know have you heard about this new technology have you heard about this new open source product and we're like oh these are really interesting, you know, these data frameworks that we've never worked with before, uh, and we've been able to incorporate some of those into the company. And just even having someone question the status quo of high frequency and, you know, what we've been doing for so many years is super, super helpful. I think for any company in general, having someone come on board and kind of question the status quo um, really pushes you and challenges you. It made, it's an, the analogy could actually be extended a little bit to say, well, if you're sitting at home listening to this show, and you know, you're in your mid-40s perhaps, as the host might be, mm-hmm. uh, then you probably should be asking friends, children, and people like that as to question your own portfolios. To why on earth don't you have this stock in it? Mm-hmm. And then you say, what stock? And you go, well, this cut this thing that we all use in our day-to-day lives. Why are you not investing in that as an investor? Because it challenges you, your one's mindset as to what you think is technology. Other people who are using it in different ways have a completely novel and in, in completely different interpretation of the whole thing. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, we've had situations like that happen where. Um, you know, sometimes we, we do a little bit of analysis on certain companies and for ESG purposes, you know, we'll look at companies like Tesla and, uh, and you know, people with an older mindset, they have a different view than we realize people with a, 
people who are long younger coming out of college and they're big fans of Elon Musk and stuff. So everyone has, there's some companies that are polarizing and dividing, but it's good to have those discussions and that discourse rather than not. So, <laughs> But let me ask you, if I may, one question, because you said Tesla then. I don't, I'm not going to pick on Tesla, but, or there many people do, but I, but it's interesting to hear someone who does high frequency trading say they do research on a company. Um, we, so it's not a part of our strategies, but we kind of just research for fun, um, okay. you know, on the side. And it's just interesting because I think I'm personally just interested in ESG in general. Um, and I love seeing like, um, you know, you compare, there's a couple of ESG companies that provide ESG scoring for mm -hmm. different firms, uh, Bloomberg and like MSCI being two big ones. And it's funny because if you look at Tesla, I think at one point they scored, one company scored Tesla really high on the ESG scale because like, well, because batteries and electric, and batteries. Yeah. but then another company scored Tesla really low. And so it's like, why is there such a, there's no consensus on, you know, some of these firms, right? And the biggest difference was because, well, Tesla has poor governance. <laughs> yeah. So so it's like, well, where do you, how do you measure that? And it's really up to, you know, you and your team and whoever you have to really decide at the end of the day. <laughs> well, look, thank you, Christina. It's been a pleasure having you on the show this morning. Thank you very much for joining us. And as I enjoy the rest of your time here in Cayman and enjoy some of our beautiful sunshine. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Thank you. This has been a thoroughly interesting conversation that I rather wish we had just a little more time for. But sadly, as always on Money Sense, we are out of time when the conversation could have so much more to go. Therefore, Christina, thank you very much for joining us and also for educating us on the role of high-frequency trading and giving us a little insight into the role of technology in the investment industry, an area that each and every one of us should be ever increasingly mindful of. Our show is almost over, but before we are, let me just hope that our listeners enjoyed it. Thank you to our guests for joining us and remind everyone that the show will be available as a podcast on the CFA Society Cayman Islands webpage and encourage you if you have any questions or topics that you wish us to cover to please email us at moneysense at candw.ky or tweet us at moneysenseradio. Our final note is that we're hoping in the near future to launch a personal finance version of the show that will take place perhaps quarterly. So Start thinking of questions you might have for investment professionals, whether it be about a mortgage, whether it be about savings. Put them together, and then we'll let you know more about when you can send those in and what show will actually be answering those for you. With that, let me say thank you again and remind you that Money Sense will be with you again in two weeks' time. Money Sense.